0: Good evening. My name is Emily Duffy, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening for a conversation on China's war on women. As many of you know, for years, China has had a one-child policy, which resulted in countless atrocities to women and unborn children. They have recently adopted a two-child policy, but the violence has not yet ended. As the March for Life approaches here in Washington, we are honored tonight to hear from Reggie Littlejohn, one of the strongest voices for life on the international stage. Ms. Littlejohn is founder and president of Women's Rights Without Frontiers, an international coalition to expose and oppose forced abortion, gendercide, and sexual slavery in China. Ms. Littlejohn has briefed officials at the White House, the United States Department of State, the United Nations, and the Vatican. She is a frequent guest on radio and television programs and has testified six times at the United States Congress, three times at the European Parliament, and she has also presented at the British, Irish, and Canadian parliaments. She is prominently featured in It's a Girl, an authoritative documentary film about gendercide in China and India. A graduate of Yale Law School, Reggie represented Chinese refugees in their political asylum cases. Please help me to welcome
1: Reggie Littlejohn. Well, thanks to everyone here for coming out on this extremely, bitterly cold evening. Uh, And as you've heard, I usually uh, speak at governmental uh, places. But since I understand that there's actually an altar directly behind this screen, I'm going to make this a little bit more personal and even talk to you a little bit about my my faith journey. Uh, So people sometimes ask, how did you get from being a typical sort of material girl Raised in West Los Angeles to dedicating your life to uh, women's rights in China. And for me, my journey began as a young girl on the uh, playground, where I just remember um, innocently thinking to myself, Who's better? Girls or boys? <laughs> and um, in my elementary school, girls and boys kind of segregated themselves after uh, or during recess so the boys would go play kickball, which to me looked like a whole lot of fun, and the girls would be consigned to four square, which I thought was completely inane. So one day I just decided, I'm gonna, I want to play f- kickball. So I went out to the kickball field, and the boys let me play, and I actually, you know, was all right. I mean, I didn't completely humiliate myself. Um, and so then after I went that, I went to the uh, PE instructor and said, please, can we make kickball a co-ed sport? And he said yes. So I fielded. The first team of all girls kickball, uh, and again we did not humiliate ourselves. We were all right. We we held our own, and so then I thought to myself, okay, this is you know with my infallible ten-year-old logic. Uh, there's obviously no e- equality between the sexes. Girls are clearly superior because we can do everything boys can do, plus we can have a baby. <laughs> so I proceeded on with my life with all this. Everything went as planned. And my crowning achievement in this vein was during my third year at Yale Law School, I got pregnant. My grades actually went up when I was pregnant. (laughs) Uh, And and so then we had a a beautiful baby boy after graduation, and I thought to myself, see, I can do everything that the guys can do, plus have a baby. Then I became became an attorney uh, in a major San Francisco law firm and was really kind of living the American dream and enjoying it. And one day, this email uh, flashed across my screen. I, 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 I was a uh, complex commercial and intellectual property litigator, but my firm had a really active pro bono uh, program. And I saw this woman who was seeking um, political asylum in the United States. She had been persecuted as a Christian and forcibly sterilized. Now, I had no- this was in the mid-'90s. I had known that China had a one-child policy. But I never stopped to even think about how they enforced it. And my client was this beautiful, very small woman who had had a second child. And in her village, she had like 20 cadres a day coming and trying to pressure her into being sterilized. And she wouldn't do it, and she wouldn't do it because these Sterilizations are not performed by highly trained gynecological surgeons. Okay, they are performed by people with just a very minimum of, of training. And what happens is the women often get butchered. And they do, not only do they not only do these forced sterilizations ruin their reproductive health, but they ruins their general health. Um, and in fact, I can tell you today from our, our, our from our network on the ground in China, um, and I'm going to go into this more later. But the women in our network in China, in the, in, um, we have a network in rural China. The women are responsible for pumping water out of an aquifer. They do not have running water. And they are uh, responsible for pumping water and for carrying water. And after a woman is sterilized, typically she can no longer do that. She might be able to pump one or two buckets a day. She can't pump you know, 20 or 30 buckets and carry them a day. And so what that does is it, it spells out economic catastrophe for her family. So my client refused to do this. Finally, they just picked her up, physically picked her up, dragged her out of her house, screaming and pleading, held her down to a table, cut her open, tied her fallopian tubes, and all of this was without uh, anesthesia. So sure enough, she ended up with chronic back pain, chronic abdominal pain, and chronic migraines for the rest of her life. Her health was entirely ruined by this. And I just remember sitting behind my desk one day in San Francisco with this beautiful view of the city on a sun, you know, sunny day and just thinking to myself, I cannot believe that on the other side of the earth, women are getting dragged out of their homes and strapped down to tables and forcibly aborted up to the ninth month of pregnancy, forcibly sterilized. I mean, how can this be happening in the 20th century? It, it just I, I, it made no sense to me. But I probably, the, the track I was on was, I was really determined to make partner at my law firm, and I was really intense about it. Um, pulling you know all-nighters, the most I ever pulled was like 10 in a row, and after I was done, I found out that 11 was the, was the Guinness World Record, so if I'd known that, I probably would have pushed it for another day or two. <laughs> um, but, while I, was, wh- wh- while I was at the law firm, two things happened. One is, Um, I, you know, we had our first child, we wanted a second child, and so I got pregnant, and I just kind of assumed that, you know, you get pregnant, nine months later you have a baby, well, that didn't happen in my case, and I ended up, uh, bleeding, and my husband rushed me to the hospital at Stanford, which is, we are near Stanford, and they spent the day testing me, and at the end of the day they said, you know, you're having a miscarriage and we cannot stop it. Um, and I was devastated, and I remember calling my mom saying, you know, why would God allow me to become pregnant with a baby who'd be so well cared for and so well loved and then just take that baby away? And she said, there, there's, we can never answer a question like that, but I believe that somehow in the future that God will use this for a purpose. So then we got pregnant again, and then I miscarried again, and then we stopped trying. So then I just walled off the pain of that, went on with my life, representing these Chinese refugees. And by the way, I, you know a lot of people hear about the one-child policy and they're horrified by it, but that's kind of where it ends. In some mysterious way, I feel that those miscarriages were, were really important because I feel that when I heard what was going on in China, that it hit me on a visceral level that it would not have otherwise. Um, it, just, it just gripped me because even though obviously I have not uh, gone through the tremendous violence and trauma of a forced abortion, okay, I, I have lost children that I wanted. And so when I heard about these women being forcibly aborted, it just gripped me in a way that I just couldn't. I couldn't r- just put it aside. So, um, so then, like I said, I was sort of on this this track towards trying to be partner, and my image in my life was that I was going to have you know, like I did. I actually bought this amazing house uh, that would have taken a partner's salary to pay off, um, and. Uh, you know, I just saw myself as being the partner in the law firm and and supervising associates doing asylum work, right? Well, I guess God had different plans and the way that he changed my trajectory was that I uh, got really, really sick and almost, I mean, we didn't know whether I was going to live or whether I was going to die. I, you know, I'm not going to go into the whole story about it. Long story short, I had to leave um, the practice of law on a medical leave of absence and I was Disabled like officially disabled on federal and state disability for like five years and During that time um, I just went sort of overnight from being this high-powered supervising attorney to somebody who was flat on my back begging God to spare my life and uh, When that happened, I just became really hungry for the Word of God and one scripture really stood out Proverbs 24 11 to 12 Deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? But since I knew about the one child policy, I felt responsible to, to, to take action on it. So when I regained my strength five years later, um, what I was able to do is use all of the analytic skills and the public speaking skills and the staying up all night skills (laughs) that I learned as an attorney and just turn that all towards advocacy on behalf of the women and the babies of China. And I founded Women's Rights Without Frontiers. My husband and I sold our home and put down $50,000 to get this work off the ground. And what happened during this five years off is I I combed the internet to just see some kind of a systematic analysis of the one-child policy. I could not find one. It was just sort of, you know, this happens here, this happens there. Here's an incidence of this or that. It just seemed like like data rubble to me. Uh, And there was a moment I'll never forget the moment when the whole thing just sort of came together as like this, this repugnant puzzle, and I realized that all of the um, so-called, un- what, I would, what I began to call the unintended consequences of, of, the one, of coercive low birth limits in, in China are causally connected. So you start out with a coercive low birth limit of one child, um, which by the way, I should explain now. I assume everyone in this room has probably heard that China has moved from a one-child policy to a two-child policy, so that now everyone can have a two-child, a second child. And I I won't ask you to raise your hand if you haven't heard that. (laughs) But that has happened. This is not like... but The way that this was announced in the media, in most of the media, is really misleading. Because China, in fact, and this started out with China. China itself announced this in English as, China abandons one-child policy which gives the idea that, you know what? All of this horrible conver- coercion is over. We're so glad that we can check this off of our list of things to worry about. Uh, so great, now, now that we're laden with all this compassion fatigue of all the horrible things that are going on all over the world, we can at least check that off of our list of things to worry about. Absolutely not, you cannot check it off your list of things to worry about. Okay, so first of all, with the two-child policy it is still illegal for women who are not married to have children. So women who are un- are unmarried are still going to be forcibly aborted, and third children are still going to be forcibly aborted. Forced abortion is forced abortion. One forced abortion is 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 too many, as far as I'm concerned. So the thing that's unique about the one child or now the two child policy is that. You know, abortion is prevalent in many countries all over the world, but in China, China is unique in having state-sponsored coercion. You know, we have Planned Parenthood in the United States. We do not have Planned Parenthood police who keep track of our menstru- women's menstrual cycles and ha- give a woman a cervical checkup every two to six months, depending on where she lives. And then, if she's not, she's you know pregnant illegally, then there's, there are places where you can't leave the doctor's office without an abortion. Um, we don't have a system of, of paid informants where your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers or supervisors are all watching everybody, you know to see if somebody's pregnant without a birth permit, um, and then to report them. So you know, there's, it, it, it's, just, it's, it's like this brave new world in China, and it has not ended. Okay? It's getting better. I, I'm glad that 100 million families in China now can have a second child. I'm glad about that. Something I'm also really glad about is that they have gotten rid of the birth permit system. Um, So that is absolutely a step in the right direction. Because before, even if you were eligible to have, even if you were married, even if you were the right age, even if you had never had a, a, a child before, if you did not have a birth permit for your first child, you could end up being forcibly aborted. That, they say, is ending. And of course, there's also, unfortunately, a, a lag time between what happens in Beijing, what is decreed by the central government, and when it actually reaches the villages. So in my villages, where you know our network is, news of this has not even gotten out yet. Uh, so I think that we are going to continue to see news of forced abortions coming out of China um, into the media. And by the way, um, families that are willing to talk, talk to the media about... Their, their experience of forced abortion are heavily persecuted. So that, um, you know, that that for every person that's willing, like Feng Zhang Mei in, in uh, 2012 forcibly aborted at seven months and was and was willing to have a picture of herself with her dead daughter next to her forcibly aborted, actually uploaded to the Internet and Women's Rights Without Frightures was the, was the organization that broke that news to the West and it had a tremendous impact um, so that the European Parliament actually passed a resolution condemning, the European Parliament of all places, okay, this is very n- not a pro-life organization, all right, passed a resolution condemning forced abortion in China, specifically citing the case of Feng Zhang Mei, that uh, her family was extremely heavily persecuted for that. Uh, but it had a huge impact, and that's why these women are willing to talk to the media, because they're hoping that someone will make something of this so that it will change, and it is changing, and it is having an impact, but it's not over yet. We have to keep the pressure on until it is over. All right, so what I was talking about was the causal connection of the unintended consequences of the one-child policy. Number one, the coercive low birth limit leads to forced abortion, forced sterilization, and even infanticide. And so, I would like to now run the first video about forced abortion in China, just be, just to give you um, an idea of what I mean, because people just don't really, it's, it's sort of inconceivable to the Western mind. I'm a litigation attorney, and in the 90s, I represented a client who had escaped China I represented her in her case for political asylum in the United States and she had been forcibly sterilized That was my introduction to the reality behind the one-child policy In fact China's one-child policy causes more violence against women and girls than any other official policy on earth. I call it China's war on women and girls. When I say forced abortion, I mean women are literally dragged out of their homes or off the streets. They can be jailed in family planning jail cells, forced to abort children that they want. And this can happen all the way up to the ninth month of pregnancy. Some of these forced abortions are so violent that the women themselves die along with their full-term babies. One case that I'll never forget is of a young woman who was seven months pregnant without a birth permit so that would be an illegal pregnancy, who was walking down the street and she was grabbed by family planning cadres, dragged off the street, strapped down to a table, forced to abort the baby that she very desperately wanted. And in the end, um, one of the medical personnel came to her with the body of her aborted baby and said, you need to pay for this so that we can dispose of the body. And she said she didn't have any money, so they just laid that body right next to her in the bed. And I've got a photograph of her looking down and just grieving the loss of this seven-month-old baby that was forcibly aborted. It does not matter whether you are pro-choice or pro-life on this issue. No one supports forced abortion because it's not a choice and this violence must stop. My goal in establishing Women's Rights Without Frontiers is to end forced abortion and sexual slavery in China. And to that end, I have testified before Congress, I've addressed the European Parliament, briefed the White House. several years ago no one was talking about the one-child policy and now because of the documentation that has been generated two things have happened number one the Chinese Communist Party cannot deny that the one-child policy is enforced through forced abortion forced sterilization and infanticide and number two it seems that almost everybody is talking about it at this point it's become a household issue Stop the violence. End China's war on women. Forced abortion is not a choice. So here we are, it's the week of the March for Life, and while in the United States uh, we've had about 55 million abortions since the Roe v. Wade decision, in China uh, the Chinese Communist Party boasts that they have prevented 400 million lives through the one child policy. 400 million lives. So that's greater than the entire population of the United States and Canada combined. And they actually broke it down for us. A few years ago, they said that they'd had 336 million abortions and 196 million sterilizations. So I would say that the greatest flow of human life in the world today is, is coming out of China. And I would also say that this is the greatest women's rights issue in the world today because of the numbers involved. You know, we're talking about what? 1.3 billion people. That means one out of every five women in the world is living under the one, the, now, not the one-child policy now, it's the two-child policy, but coercive population control. And then when you put that together with gendercide, the sex-selective abortion of baby girls, which I'll talk about in a minute, that's China and India, both have that. And when you and put those two together, you're talking about one-third of the women in the world. I would say that this is the real war against women. I was also horrified to learn, as I was sick, uh, that the United States and, in, and uh, Europe are in some sense complicit with this because of our funding of the United Nations Family Planning Fund and also International Planned Parenthood, both of whom have been working hand in glove with population control in China. So, Beyond this, as I just mentioned, so we've got the coercive low birth limit, with, which leads to forced abortion, forced sterilization, and, uh, and even infanticide in certain cases. Um, then you have the sex-selective abortion of baby girls, the gender side issue. So uh, China has the, the most imbalanced gender ratio of any country in the world, and it's anywhere between... 115 to 118 boys born for every 100 girls born, depending who you ask. Uh, and India has 112 boys born for every 100 girls born. So India has the dowry system, which China does not have. China has the coercive um, low birth, uh, the coerc- coercive population control, which India does not have. And you can, So you can see from the difference is that the coercive low birth limit is actually a more powerful incentive for gendercide Um, than is even the dowry system in in India. But both countries really have a problem with sex-selective abortion. Uh, So I guess I'm gonna just play another brief clip. This is called, uh, this is the trailer from the It's a Girl film. And It's a Girl, the It's a Girl film is a 63-minute feature-length documentary, uh, which is the authoritative authoritative documentary on gendercide in India and China. Uh, So this is just, and this is, we've played this at the European Parliament, the British Parliament and here on Capitol Hill as well. So I just want to show you the, the three minute trailer to that.
0: Today, India and China eliminate more girls uh, than the number of girls born in America every year. The
1: definition of a genocide is a systematic and methodical
0: extermination of a certain group. And the gender side is
1: that systematic and methodical extermination of a
2: gender group. Why are Indian households secretly? and brutally eliminating daughters from their family system. They just wet the cloth and they fold it like this and
0: they put it on the face so the child can't breathe. Immediately the child will die. <laughs>
1: But what this is, is an
0: entire system, a social machinery that says we don't want females.
2: But the real problem started after I became pregnant, they started asking me for a sex determination. They wanted to know if the children are girls or boys. They started torturing me to get an abortion done. What should I do to save my daughters? ki uske se re we knew he should eat. They
1: So as as this clip mentioned, there are an estimated 200 million women and girls missing in the world today due to sex-selective abortion. The number 200 million is greater than all the casualties of all the wars of the 20th century. Again, I submit to you that this is the war against women. This sex-selective abortion of baby girls has led to, a gender imbalance. In both China and India, they have about 37 million more men living than women. That, in turn, is driving human trafficking and sexual slavery in those nations. And people sometimes ask, you know, how do the Chinese women deal with this this horrific set of circumstances? Well, the answer to that is very sobering, which is that China has the highest female suicide rate in the world and about 590 women a day end their their lives. So as a young girl, I never dreamed that my answer to the innocent question, who's better, girls or boys, could end up spelling a death sentence for hundreds of millions of of baby girls. So why did China move from a one-child policy to a two-child policy? In my opinion. This is not that China has developed a conscience and that they are repenting in some way of coercive population control. I believe that this move is entirely run by demographics and economics. So I'd like to start the PowerPoint. Okay, here we go. And um, most of this, if not all of this, is, has been um, provided uh, by Nicholas Eberstadt, who is a demographer and... A friend of mine and has testified with me before Congress several times. But you can see that uh, in 1953 the sex ratio at birth um, between women and uh, girls and boys in China was 107 um, boys born for every 100 girls born. And that's on the upper edge of normal. Usually it's like 105 to 107 boys born. Just naturally there's going to be more boys born than girls because boys are weaker than girls. They actually die easier. (laughs) So nature is taking care of that. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, going all the way up to 119 boys born for every um, 100 girls born in 2010, and the number has gone down a little bit since then. But the way that it breaks down is very interesting. So in the countryside, they have long had a policy where if the first child is a girl, you can have a second child. And that's been going on for a very, very long time. And what demographers have found is that for that first child that couples will allow uh, nature to take its course and the the sex ratios at birth are, are about normal. But then on the second child, which you can only have if there's a girl, the average is about 140 boys born for every 100 girls born. And in three provinces, it's over 190 boys born for every 100 girls born. So it's that second daughter that is routinely aborted or abandoned after birth. Okay, so here we go uh, with the the working age population. Because of the one-child policy, China's working age population is on a a steep decline. And again, this is, I think, the reason that they moved to a two-child policy. And then their aging population is is just zooming up. So they can see that, this, this is what happened. Under the Mao era, Chairman Mao had said, People are the strength of China, and the average fertility rate was about six kids per woman, 5.9 children per woman in the Mao era. Then when Deng Xiaoping took over, he said, oh my gosh, how are we gonna deal with this population explosion? And they instituted the one-child policy. So then there was this steep population or or, uh, ratio decline, but now all of those, the people who were under the Mao era that were born, that population explosion is now heading towards retirement, and they don't have the young population to Sustain it. So when people say, people say "Well, you know, China really has a population problem," I'll say, "Yeah, they do. Their population problem is not that they have too many people, It's that they have too few young people and too few women. That's what the problem is, and that's why they move from a one-child policy to a two-child policy, in my opinion. All right, so this has to do with um, sort of our, the solution to all of this. Um, actually, maybe I'll go ahead and talk about that. So what what are we doing about it? What is Women's Rights Without Frontiers doing about it? So as we've mentioned, you know we've testified all over the world to various governmental bodies, and I've spoken to many many groups. And actually, I'm going to be the keynote speaker at the Georgetown Cardinal O'Connor Conference on Saturday morning. So if you can, you know, shovel the snow away from your driveway or whatever and get there, I would love to see you there. Um, just raising the visibility, providing documentation. When I started out on, doing this work, China was officially denying, actually, that they were practicing forced abortion. So they were denying it and we were documenting it. Um, and now they can't credibly deny it. But what, they, but what they do say is, we've abandoned that. That's the old China, that's not the new China. And I, I will just say to you, just watch. I have no doubt that, that further Actually, I, ju- I testified before Congress just on December 3rd with a woman who was fleeing forced abortion in China at this time because the, ch- the two-child policy was not taking effect until January 1st. Actually, at that time, we thought it was going to be April. It was moved forward to January 1st, so that was good. But she had gotten pregnant with her second child before the two-child policy had taken effect, and so she was fleeing China to, to, to flee a forced abortion. It's not over. So... So we have an international advocacy campaign where we document these things and we raise visibility. And then the other thing that we have is we have this on-the-ground network in China um, called our Save a Girl campaign. So we have field workers on the ground in China, and we have connections with local clinics and, and one of the hospitals. So if a woman comes in and says that she's, you know, she has an ultrasound to see if she is pregnant with a girl, um, and then schedules herself for an abortion, or if she's given birth to a baby girl and is being pressured by her in-laws to abort or abandon the baby girl, will actually go to her door and say, please do not abort, please do not abandon your baby because she's a girl, she's a precious daughter, and we will give you a monthly stipend for a year to empower you to keep your daughter. And we have a tremendous success rate. We've saved over 200 baby girls. It was 201 baby girls by the end of last year, so hundreds of girls, <laughs> um, by this program. Um, and so our model is not for the mother to give birth and then we take the baby and put her up for adoption. That's not it, because I get inquiries, and please help me adopt a baby girl. It's like, I have nothing to do with the adoption of baby girls from China. What I have to do with is empowering the mother to keep her daughter, because by and large, these women do not want to abort their daughters. They are being pressured by their in-laws. So why? Why are women in China and India pressured to abort their daughters? India has the the, the dowry system that China doesn't have. And dowry is is illegal, but it's practiced. It's widely practiced. And what it means is that uh, when a young couple marries in India, the woman's family has to give the man's family a huge amount of resources. So if you're in the village, you might have to give cows or whatever it is. If you're a rich person, you might have to give Mercedes Benz or a yacht, just depending on what your economic level is. And so then when people get pregnant, they know that if it's a boy, they're going to be receiving a huge amount of resources uh, in 20 years. And if it's a girl, they're going to be losing a huge amount of resources. They do the math, and they abort the girls. Um, and, okay, so that's, that's unique to India. And then, as we know, the, the coercive low birth limit is unique to China. What is common to the two countries is that traditionally, and so I've got to, you know, underline the, the tradition, okay, because people do break the tradition, but traditionally, when a young couple marries, the young woman goes over to, and becomes a part of the young man's family, and that, that couple supports his parents in their old age. So they don't have like social security the way that we do. They have sons, and daughters-in-law. So it's it's a common saying that you know both in China and India. They they don't want daughters. They want daughters-in-law, because having a daughter. There's a saying that uh, that raising a girl is like watering somebody else's garden. All of the resources, all of the money, all the love, all the energy, all the time, all the heartache, all the everything that it takes to raise a kid to the point where she's you know standing on her own and ready to get married, all of those resources are gonna go over to her future husband's family and they're gonna lose her. Um, so this is really deeply ingrained in, in the culture and it's something that, um, that is gonna take time and effort. It's a lifelong effort. Maybe even more than one lifetime to try to counter that. So we're trying to counter that. One baby girl at a time. You know, This is a precious daughter and um, so, our model is to, to empower the mother to keep her daughter. And our model is also just to save the life of the girl. So what we have found is that the most vulnerable time in the life of a baby girl is between about six or seven months of pregnancy, because all of these abortions are, by definition, late-term abortions, because it takes a long time to be able to see what the, what the gender of the fetus is. All right? If we can get to the woman between s- six or seven months of pregnancy, and then about three months after the baby's born, by that time everybody's in love with her and can't imagine life without her, we can save that child's life. Um, and in the past, there was the HUCO system where uh, babies that were born illegally and some of our girls were born illegally would not, would not have something called HUCO, household registration. If you don't have that, um, then you're not eligible for health care or education and you're, you, know, you can't officially travel. You can't officially marry. You can't officially work. You you're just you have no official existence at all. And China, is, uh, is, I understand, is in the process of doing away with the hukou system, which is something that we, Women's Rights Without Frontiers has been advocating for um, ever since the beginning. And we're very, very excited about that. We hope it really does happen so that all of our baby girls will suddenly become legal and be eligible for all this stuff. So at least we saved their lives. And now they, they will be able to have a future. So. Uh, so here are some pictures of our babies. <laughs> so Most of these are second daughters that, that, you know, that, it's, um, that we have saved their lives. This is actually a baby boy uh, whose mother was, was trying to escape a forced abortion. So we have um, some safe houses that we, that we can let people stay in like every couple weeks they move them because it takes about two weeks for the family planning and police to, f- to figure out that somebody's there. And in getting that money to her to, just so she could survive and that she was able to give birth to this beautiful baby boy, and this is the greatest part of being you know of doing my the, what I do, which is these young girls are um, Annie and Ruli Zhang. they are the daughters of Zhang Lin. Zhang Lin is a very venerated um, activist in China he Uh, was trained as a nuclear physicist, but then left what could have been a life of privilege to uh, protest for democracy in connection with the Tiananmen Square pro-democracy movement. So he was not on Tiananmen Square, but something that a lot of people don't realize is that um, Tiananmen Square was like the main protest, but there were satellite protests in many places around China. He led the protests in Anhui province. And for that and for his writings that have been highly critical of the Chinese Communist Party, he has been jailed and tortured horribly on and off. I believe now he's in his 14th year. And when they could not shut him up by persecuting him directly, they actually detained his younger daughter Annie, kidnapped her at, at 10 years old out of her elementary school, detained her overnight, would not allow her to go to school. This made international headlines, which is how I got involved with her case. They put the family under house arrest. The family escaped house arrest and became fugitives. When they were caught, Zhang Lin got word out to me through a mutual friend of ours uh, that he and Annie would like Annie to come to the United States because she couldn't couldn't live a normal life in China. So with the help of Congressman Chris Smith and others in the United States and also some very brave people in China, four of whom were detained for helping Annie, we were able to get Annie and her sister out of China and have been raising them as our own daughters. Whereas I had those two miscarriages, I just feel like in God's economy that He's given me these two beautiful Chinese daughters I would not otherwise have had. So. <laughs> so I I believe that my mother was right. You know I I believe that I probably never would have gotten involved with this work if it hadn't been for my own miscarriages or this this tremendous illness that I had. Uh, but I I just I just. I believe that God will use our pain for a purpose. Um, I'm sure that everyone here has had experiences that were very painful. You cannot get through life on this earth without it. I don't care how rich you are, how smart you are, how healthy you are, it doesn't matter. Everyone in this world is going to go through significant pain. And, I, and The Bible says that we go through these things so that we can comfort others. Uh, so I would just commend, I, I, I commend to you to look into where has been the biggest heartbreak in your life, um, and that could be where God is calling you for, for you to have an impact for the kingdom. So thank you very much. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm open to questions. So let's assume I'm a hard-headed communist Chinese functionary. Okay. And I take a look at the graph that talked about the ratio of the elderly to the younger people. Have I considered killing the elderly? Oh, God. okay, I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> this is my, my natural reaction. I mean, okay. is it Confucian respect for the elderly that prevents them from doing that? What, what preve- if they can go after the young, why, why is it that they're not going after the old? Okay, so I appreciate your question. Obviously, it's an emotional one for me. Um, one of the, another unintended consequence that's coming to light for the one child policy is that China is undergoing like a rash of elderly suicide. So these elderly people, you know, you, you, the model family in China right now is, you know, four grandparents for two parents for one kid. And that one kid cannot sustain all of that. And, there's a, and, the, and also, especially for the elderly who live in the rural areas um, and their kids, are forced to go to the city to get jobs and it's really hard to get back to visit their parent their elderly parents and it's really expensive in the city, so it's really hard to send money back. So these parents they feel abandoned. Um, they don't have the resources, especially if their only child was a girl, you know, they don't they don't have resources. And the elderly in China have been killing themselves at record rates and it's increasing. So um, yeah, I mean, in, in terms of euthanasia in in China, um, that is something that that's absolutely something that I worry about on, on on the horizon. You know, if they're going to be doing forcibly aborting the babies, you know, what's going to happen to the elderly? So anyway, I've I've not heard anything about forced euthanasia or anything like that in China, um, but it's definitely a huge concern. I mean, what are they going to do? What is the solution going to be? they haven't proposed anything because I don't think there is a solution. They've gotten themselves into a mess that it is impossible to get out of at this point.
2: What's the state of marriage in China and what do they do with the surplus marriage age males?
1: (laughs) Okay, so um, what's happening with the surplus males is women are are upwardly mobile because there are fewer of them. So in the outlying the poorest villages, they have a phenomenon called bachelor villages because all of the marriage-age women have gone to the town or the city. And so this is a, is a recipe for social unrest. And it's also something that you figure 37 million marriage age men is also 37 million military age men so who knows what's going to happen to them but if I were one of the surrounding countries of of China who's been showing their expansionism lately you know it it would make me very nervous so that's sort of the answer to your question I know you you said China and India were the largest um, places countries with uh, Coercive or forced abortion? No, no. India does not have forced abortion. They have gender side, the sex Ge- selective abortion. Si- right, okay, gender side.
0: Are there any other countries around the world where they're through government policy, or that there is forced abortion or gender side that you know of? On any, I mean, smaller countries, is this is this unique to India and China, or are there other
1: countries that exhibit these type of policies? that you know of. Okay, so so China is um, the only country that has a government-enforced coercive low birth limit. But um, there are a number of countries in Asia, but not just in Asia. Even there's, um, there's some in, in Central um, America and even in, like, you know, Eastern Europe or the Balkans that have elevated uh, gender ratios. And by the way, um, I, I, I would like to add that people could say well what we need to do is improve women's economic circumstances and educate them and this won't happen actually that is not the case so in india they did a study and they found out that the women who are more highly educated and had more disposable in- income that they had worse gender ratios because they had the abil- th- they can design their families so it's it's not it's not a solution simply to educate people and to give them more resources i mean there's just a deep cultural bias that needs to be addressed here in lifting up of women and girls.
0: First of all, thank you for your wonderful presentation and especially your heart and the passion to saving those lives of the baby girls. And especially one thing I want to say is empowering the women to keep their daughter's lives. Uh, My question is about, you know, we have a lot of refugees flee uh, to the United States because of their one-child policy? Well, the government already said we abandoned the uh, one-child policy. Will the immigration laws or policies will be changed because of the the, um, allowance for having the second baby?
1: Thank you so much for that question. You know, um, this is something that is a huge thorn in the side of immigration lawyers, which is that the Chinese Communist Party will announce something so, so, I mean, I'm not going to go through the... I'll go through the history of this really quickly. So, a few years ago, they did the, an experiment, which was just in Shanghai, if both couples were members, were only children, they could have a second child. All right. How narrow is that exception? One city, both couples, they can have a second child. How is it announced in the Western media? China abandons the one-child policy. Then there was... If both members of a couple nationally were were um, only children, they can have a second child. Another, again, that only affected 10 million couples. 10 million in a a population of 1.3 billion. And how is it announced by the Western media? Again, China abandons the one-child policy. Then it's if one member of a couple is an only child, they can have a second child. Again, China abandons. China abandons. China abandons. Every time this happens, I mean, I feel like Sisyphus. All right. I'm pushing this huge boulder up a mountain, and I'm trying. To say, this is happening. This is happening. It's terrible. We've got to stop it. And every time, I, and then they make this announcement. Announce that China's abandoned, and the, and the boulder just rolls right back down to the bottom of the mountain, and I have to start all over again. And immigration lawyers have to deal with this because, you know, the INS really they, they want to keep people out, or they want to, you know, and and so every time you get these announcements, then you know we, there has to be all this congressional testimony, and then. It has to work its way into immigration. And meanwhile, people who really should be getting asylum are not getting asylum because if they get sent back, they're going to be either forcibly aborted or forcibly sterilized because, in fact, they don't fall into one of the exceptions. So um, it shouldn't change. I mean, the policy, the, it, they should continue to let people in on the basis of course, of population control, and that's a battle that we're going to have to fight again.
0: Hi, thank you for your talk. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned that Planned Parenthood had some involvement in, um, in the population control, and I was wondering if you could say more about the extent of that and the, kind of the degree
1: of um, how, how direct that is. Okay, so the United Nations Family Planning Fund and International Planned Parenthood have partnered with China, you know, the Chinese Population Control, or Family Planning as they would call it, And I cannot tell you a whole lot more than that because it is extremely opaque. They are not transparent about their involvement. Now, so so, um, Colin Powell, the the Bush administration did not, they they cut off UNFPA funding. Colin Powell had said, when when he was Secretary of State, said that they are complicit with it, um, not based on any hard evidence like, We know that this money went here and that this is what you did with it. It was more that they were so opaque that all you can say is okay, let's say you're not paying for the actual abortions, but you're paying for the staff salaries or the vehicles or the ultrasound equipment or whatever else it is. Money is fungible. You're funneling money into China. You say you're working with the Chinese um, family planning uh, policy. they're forcibly aborting people therefore you are complicit and it's it, it, and so I wish that I could cite chapter and verse uh, to you but it, it, you know the, China, the Chinese government is not going to let us into China to do this research and you, you know you go on the websites of these organizations and they don't say exactly where they are but they will say you know we are partnering with the Chinese you know population control or whatever um, you know it's on their websites how let me ask you this I appreciate you being here this is the first time I mean I've known about the the Chinese policy, but never have heard it from this angle and the depth that you're talking about tonight. Tell me exactly how this is also translating into the sex slavery and the sex trafficking that is happening from this country and vice versa. From this country? Well, trafficking Americans to China? Is that happening and are, at the same time, we know that they're coming here illegally and having uh, births so how is this all coming together? Sex selective abortion and the gender ratios are obviously gonna be dri- driving uh, sex trafficking in Asia. And in China, you know, women are trafficked across international borders from Laos, Vietnam, all, all over the place, you know, Cambodia, um, and are, are trafficked into China to serve as forced brides or as, Sex slaves, and, 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 and the people that I really um, feel the, the saddest for are the women and girls who are coming over from North Korea. Because if, if human rights is worse anywhere in the world than China, it's North Korea. And people risk their lives to get over that border, and they think that they're finally getting to some kind of safety in China. And then the, the young women and the girls get snapped up in the sex slave trade in China, and there's nothing they can do about it. Because if they went to the authorities and said, "Look, I am being raped. I am being beaten. You know, I'm in danger of being murdered," the authorities in China will say, "Well, ah, uh, you're an illegal economic migrant, and they will repatriate them to North Korea, where they can end up actually in, in one of these horrible forced labor death camps, or even be being executed." So, you know, I I actually am. am, am I'm looking for a partner on the border between China and North Korea to try to help some of these women Uh, because my heart just breaks when I think about about their situation.
0: How are you able to operate within China without getting busted or having your people thrown into jail?
1: Okay, so prayer. <laughs> I've got about 300 people who are praying for, you know, I send out prayer requests and they pray. And seriously, I mean, I'm quite serious about that. So the people in China, um, in our network, are, um, we, we have not had a single run in with any authority. We have just been operating, you know, freely. They are Chinese nationals, they're not Americans. I mean, it'd be really, um, unwise, shall we say, for me to show up in one of our villages because it would be such a sensation. I, mean, I don't know when they've ever had an Anglo person show up there. So I don't go over to China at all. Um, but the people there are people who are from the area, and they just operate. and We have not had a single problem. So you know, thank God for that.
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so you might have heard um, in the Epic Times they talk about you know the, the, because the Falun Gong is, is influential there and they talk about the organ harvesting. Some people are considering, I think, prosecuting Zhang Zemin for organ harvesting. And you might have heard uh, Miss World Canada, I think it was, it was de- denied entry to China to Hainan Island because of the fact for the beauty contestant because because of the fact that she was criticizing organ harvesting. But um, I am wondering what, what sort of legal basis there is against Beijing, because if you consider um, all, all the political leaders in this country as well as a lot of other countries are competing to, to make economic deals with China. You have things like the Trans-Pacific Partnership and things like that. And, and, and what they do, uh, you probably heard this expression, it is the economy stupid, in which case uh, things like human rights, they kind of shove in a corner and, 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 and do their best to, to, to make a political deal, saying, well, this is our overarching thing. And the United Nations, China is a permanent member of the Security Council. It wasn't always that way. One time, Taiwan was actually a permanent member. But but it, uh, under, under Chinese law, I, I, I guess all this is legal and, and read Chinese law. And, and they have the, the uh, patriotic church, the Catholic Church in China, which is like a fake church, okay? So, so I'm wondering what exactly are, are your legal options against the leaders can anything be done because oh you mean like teams... suing
1: leaders that's, yeah. that's that's that okay okay so um if you're asking me you know how one sues a leader of china for human rights violations the answer is i don't know it's really hard okay now if you're asking um is all of this legal in china i'd say no i mean china has a great they have a great constitution they have a constitution that does protect people's rights and forced abortion is actually illegal under the Chinese constitution, um, as is the execution of prisoners to harvest their organs for transplant. But China, one of the main criticisms of China um, is that they don't follow a, a rule of law. So China had, like, like the blind activist Chen Guanchen, the barefoot lawyer, one of, what his thrust was was to get China to obey its own laws. Right, so, so there is leverage within China in their own legal system of, of trying to hold them accountable to their own laws. So there's, there, there's that. But then also, um, China has, has uh, uh, signed any number of international human rights treaties. And you can go on, uh, I would commend to you, the Congressional Executive Commission on China, which has right there all the treaties that China has signed, which forbid this kind of stuff. But as a final uh, answer to your question, Yes, we are in debt to China. Yes, China gives money to um, other nations and has bought its way into you know, basically not being held accountable at all at the United Nations, um, which is why the work of Women's Rights Without Frontiers is so important. We're a non-governmental organization. We don't get any money from the government. We are completely free to simply speak the truth to power. And that's what we do.
0: Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Please join me in thanking Reggie Littlejohn for being with us tonight.